Matthew chapter 26, we'll begin by reading verses 6 through 13. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can go do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be as spoken of in memory of her. Turn with me to John chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 55 of chapter 11 and we'll read through chapter 12 verse 11. John 11 verse 55 through 12, 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus, and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, Six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot... One of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, 
whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are continually grateful for the ministry that you have upon our hearts and souls and mind by your word and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We pray that you would teach us this morning that we'd be put in a new state of awe regarding what you have done by giving us Jesus, and that out of gratitude and thankfulness it might inspire us in obedience towards you. We thank you for the examples of those who have gone before us. We thank you that they're even remembered here in Scripture for us to learn from. But most of all, may we see what all this points towards, and that is your Son. And may He be glorified as we think about Him this morning. We pray in His name. Amen. So as we start this morning, I want to consider this event in light of all the details that are provided to us in Matthew, Mark, and John. We are a week out from Passover, and therefore also a week out from Jesus' own meeting with death. Messianic expectations are all around. They're at all-time highs as people are looking to Jesus to bring about the fruition of Old Testament prophecy. There's a whole lot of discussion. There's much anticipation regarding Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. People are bustling about with the preparations of the Holy Week. And pilgrims are on the move coming for the celebration and the deliverance that God provided so many years in their past. The remembrance of what God did in rescuing the Hebrews out of Egypt. People are looking for Jesus and they're asking one another, we're told, even in the temple complex, what do you think? He's not actually going to come, do you think he will? There are doubts that are circulating regarding whether or not he will come. Perhaps those doubts have arisen because they've also gotten report that the chief priests and scribes are looking for Jesus, but with completely different motives in play. They'd given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they were to report the matter immediately to them so that they might arrest Jesus. Ultimately, what they're doing here is they're trying to disguise their murderous intentions through jurisprudence. They hope that if they arrest him and give him a sham of a trial, that maybe their murderous hearts won't be exposed. It'll just be a matter of legality of the law. It would be ideal if they could capture Jesus outside of the public eye. But that presents to them a little bit of a problem, doesn't it? Because right here at Passover time, there would be a whole lot of people around. So Jesus here, six days before the Passover, comes to Bethany. John tells us this. Six days beforehand, he comes to Bethany and he comes to the very place where Lazarus had been raised from the dead not long before this. The town of Bethany was a mere two miles to the east of Jerusalem, on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Now, think about it for just a minute. No matter what things that ever transpired in Bethany, recent events would have transposed what this town was remembered for. It doesn't really matter what was grown here. It doesn't matter how much business or how much of a, 
Um, great economic place this place was. It doesn't really matter what other historical things have happened there. What's center stage in the minds of everyone who lives in Bethany is the recent event of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, this is the city where Jesus had very recently brought a dead corpse back to life. Called the corpse out of the tomb and out comes Lazarus with bandages on, right? And he says, unwrap him. This is what's so notable about this town. And Jesus comes back to this town and he reclines, we're told in Matthew and Mark, at Simon the leper's house. Now, we, we have a couple things to think about here. Either Simon the leper has passed away and it's still being referred to as Simon the leper's house. Because certainly what we know is that if Simon the leper was present, he certainly could no longer be leprous. For if he was, he would have made the entire gathering unclean. And here, especially on the high holy week of Passover, that was the absolute worst thing you could do. Remember, people are even showing up to Jerusalem. We're told here in John's account, people are showing up early to Jerusalem to go through purification. They're very concerned about this. So certainly what we know is that Simon the leper is either A, dead, or B, he's no longer leprous. Simon doesn't speak in the account. And we don't know anything else about him. It's quite possible that maybe he was no longer leprous and still alive. If that's the case, many of us might consider that perhaps he was a recipient of Jesus' healing. But we're not told. We do know that there are many other things not recorded in the Gospels that Jesus did. And if you're going to record all of them, not even the sky itself could contain the scroll, right? So we don't know how many things Jesus did. All we do know is that they're in this house of this guy named Simon the leper. If he is still alive, you go, why still call him a leper? Well, it might be kind of similar today if you have a family member or someone who's a cancer survivor. And as a result, having survived such a horrible disease might still be associated with their name. So-and-so, the one who survived cancer. Here we have Simon. And by the way, Simon was such a common name that it also distinguished which Simon we're talking about here. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they're all present here as well. And as we come into the account, it seems like we know these characters because they're picking up their normal roles. What we know about these individuals Once again, what is Martha doing? She's serving. Yeah, we're told she's busy serving. She's showing her love in hospitality to Jesus. Note, this time, not complaining about what Mary's doing. Note that. No complaints here this time. Martha's just serving. She's making preparations. She's showing her love and hospitality. And meanwhile, we find Mary yet again at Jesus' feet. We find Mary doing the same thing. She's coming to Jesus' feet, but this time she brings a luxurious gift as an expression of her love. We could say that while Martha is attending to Jesus' life, giving him food and drink, Mary is looking to Jesus' death, anointing him, Jesus says here, for burial. Mary pours costly perfume on Jesus' head. And we're told that she also pours it upon his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Now, you have to understand that if you were reclining at the table, typically what that meant is that your feet were under you, your feet behind you, and you were sitting like on a cushion and kind of leaning back like this. And so it would be quite easy to get to both one's head and one's feet if you came up behind 
that individual. And that's the picture we have here. She pours this costly perfume or ointment onto Jesus and it trickles down all over his body and she begins wiping his feet with her hair. Now, we're reminded of an earlier event in Jesus' ministry. This is not the only time that we see a woman at Jesus' feet wiping his feet with her hair. Here's another scenario. And by the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record one event of a woman attending to Jesus in this way. We're obviously handling John, Matthew, and Mark together. And so instantly we indicate, we talked about Luke's account way earlier, because it happens earlier in Jesus' ministry. There are some similarities between the two accounts, and it has caused some people to say, well, maybe they're just one and the same. But there are some distinguishing features as well. They, they both come, happen to uh, individuals who are inside of a man's house named Simon. There's a Simon pictured in both. Here is Simon the leper, and the previous Simon the Pharisee. But again, as I said, that name is so common, that's not so very unusual. It's not that surprising. On that occasion, as on this one, when this woman does this act of adoration towards Jesus, there are objections that are raised. But there's a big difference in the type of objection that comes. In Luke's account, that happens earlier in Jesus' ministry, the objection comes, why? You can help me. Why? Anybody remember? The objection comes because this woman is a woman of the city. It's the morality of the woman that's in question. And it causes the ones there at the table to question Jesus. Why? They question Jesus' ability as a prophet. For if he was, he would surely know who this woman is. Now, what's implied by their reasoning here? They're saying this. If he knew who this woman was, he wouldn't allow her to touch his feet. There's no way he would allow a woman like that to get that close to him, much less weep and with her tears wet his feet and wipe his feet with her hair. Jesus responded by highlighting his host's inability to consider two things. Number one, the love that he, Jesus, has even when he knows our sin and that he doesn't withdraw from sinners, but that he draws sinners near The host had failed to reckon with who Jesus was in the heart of love and grace and mercy that he had towards even the chief of sinners. The second thing, though, that the host doesn't take into proper account is what happens in a heart when it's transformed by that love. What happens in an individual's life when they've been touched by the grace and mercy of God. He failed to reckon with the depth of gratitude that fills a person's soul when they're saved. This woman, Jesus points out, contrary to Simon the Pharisee, who hadn't even provided Jesus with water to wash his feet, which, by the way, was customary, just like kind of an act of normal procedure, neither had he kissed Jesus as he had entered, nor had he given him any oil to anoint himself. None of that was given. None of even some, some amount of the common sorts of niceties that might be provided for a guest. None of them were given to Jesus. And then Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee, You gave me none of that. Meanwhile, this woman has wet my feet with her tears. This woman, since the moment she came in, hasn't ceased from kissing my feet. This woman hasn't stopped wiping my feet and anointing them with perfume. 
Well, this woman was a notorious sinner. She was a forgiven one. One who had met with a great Savior. That's the objection there. That's not at all the objection we see this morning. These are two separate accounts. In this latter occasion, recorded by the other three Gospels, the objection that comes has nothing to do with the woman's personal character. John tells us who that woman is. Mary. And nobody has an issue with Mary's personal character. The issue that arises is the extravagance of the gift. It's the extravagance of the gift that has just irked those who are standing by. The concern is that this gift has been misused. Instead of being poured out, this perfume or ointment could have been sold and the money could have been used to help the poor. Judas in particular is representative of this perspective. Although as we see in the account, he, like the Pharisees, has other motives at work. Add to all of this, that the crowds are approaching not only to see Jesus, but to see who? They're coming to Bethany for what reason? Why is this town famous now? Lazarus. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. They want to see this guy who is in the grave and now living. Little do they know that Lazarus' resurrection was just a prelude to a much greater resurrection. And for this reason, we're told that the religious leaders who are already plotting Jesus' death are planning on getting rid of Lazarus too. I mean, think about it. Nothing could be worse for your cause than to have a walking, previously dead man. Evidence, continued ongoing evidence of the power, the miraculous power and compassion and love of Jesus. Their hardened, murderous, covetous hearts can't allow this news of Jesus' work to spread. This dead man, previously dead man, could be the fly in their ointment. So they've got to get rid of him as well. Do you sense how things are ramping up? Things are getting... The situation becomes more and more heightened. You can see both the hope and the anticipation of the populace, as well as simultaneously the murderous plots of the religious leaders. And there's a sense in which both groups are going to be disappointed. Note this. There's a sense in which both groups are going to be disappointed. Because for those who are anticipating the fullness of the kingdom, well, Jesus hadn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. He tells us what He he came to do. He came to seek and save the lost, to lay down His life as a ransom for many. So the disciples and crowds are going to be disappointed Because Jesus isn't going to meet with their expectations about what the Messiah should be. He's going to so supersede their expectations. He's come to give a much greater and grander salvation. But they're going to be disappointed in the short run because things aren't going to go the way that they thought they might and hoped they would. But neither would these religious leaders see their end game profit them. The power and authority they worked so desperately to hold on to would eventually be stripped from them regardless. And while they might themselves have thought that they had won with the unfolding events that are to come, everything was occurring according to God the Father's timetable, 
And God the Father would not allow His Son to suffer decay. Jesus would die, yes, but He would rise from the dead. He would conquer sin and death because neither sin nor death could hold the sinless Prince of Life down. And one day, every person will admit that the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world is also the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He is the King of a far better country, the new heavens and the new earth, which is coming one day. So with this big picture in mind, I want to consider Mary's gift. And in so doing, we ourselves become part of the fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied on this occasion. Do you realize that? This morning, we're engaging in part of the fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied would happen. He guaranteed this. He promised this. Now, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel might be preached in the whole world, also what this woman has done will be spoken in memory of her. In a sermon entitled, A Precious Gift, I'd like to remember three aspects of this gift that marks it as precious. Three aspects that makes a gift precious. Well, first of all, look at its comparative value. It's comparative value. You see, a precious gift has distinctive value. A precious gift has distinctive value. The giving of anointing oil was, to guess, was a common practice. What made this act so unique was that which Mary used. We're told it was Pure spikenard, a highly treasured ointment. It was imported from India and therefore very expensive. It's the lavishness of this action which draws so much attention to it. Think about it this way. If Mary had just come out and dropped a couple of drops of olive oil on Jesus, it would have been met with just, oh, that's what we normally do, like giving somebody a handshake. Or... Has she even come out with this vial and taken one drop and dropped it on Jesus' head? Similarly, people would be like, okay, a little extravagant, but we can understand that. But to use this valuable ointment and literally dump it all over Jesus is completely unexpected. I wonder if it was as unexpected as some wise men coming from the east a meeting with the young child Jesus and presenting to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You see, those gifts, as this gift, are gifts worthy of a king. Both at the beginning of Jesus' life and now here at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see gifts being given to Jesus that are gifts worthy of a king. Judas Iscariot well understands what that perfume is worth. He knows what that gift would fetch were he to sell it. Starts to give us more indication about the way in which money gripped this man's heart. All he can think about is how much money that perfume could have made. He says 300 denarii. If you take into account not working on the Sabbaths, 
and the religious celebrations during the year in Israel, 300 denarii would equal about a year's salary. Denarius was about one day's work, general in general, one day's work. So 300 days of work, roughly a year's worth of salary. So imagine your salary right now. Take your year's salary and invest it in a vial of perfume. Anybody ever done that before? We think it's outrageous when we pay 50 bucks or something like that, right? Take a year's worth of salary and invest it in an ointment. It represented a year's worth of hard labor. Precious gift has distinctive value. A precious gift also indicates highest priorities. You see, gifts have value. There's some sort of value attached to a gift. And they can give an indication regarding how valuable the recipient is to the one who is giving the gift. Small gifts are common as acts of courtesy and kindness. Larger gifts are expressions of admiration and devotion. But sacrificial, lavish gifts indicate a person's highest love and highest priorities. So you see, it's the comparative value of this pure spikenard perfume that catches the eye, we should say, catches the nose of everyone who's present there, right? That room must have filled with the fragrance of that. It must be billowing out of every opening in the room. But sadly, instead of celebration, Mary's act is met with judgmental glances. Disapproving comments. Matthew says it's the disciples who objected to this. Mark indicates that some of them were objecting. John tells us who's the ringleader. Judas. Judas here is the main spokesman. We see a lot of times where Peter speaks for the group. Here we see Judas speaking for the group. It's possible that his murmurings and his pious sounding rebuke just induced the others to join in. This is the interesting thing about group dynamics. You know, how many grumblers does it take to start the whole group grumbling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's this guy. He's like, he thinks in his mind, what could I do with the money sold from that perfume? How dare she waste that on Jesus? I got it. This should have been given to the poor. Hey, can you believe that she's giving this to Jesus? This should have been sold and given to the poor. Yeah, 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 yeah. All of a sudden... We've got the disciples at odds with Mary. You see, this objection is one that concerns priorities. They consider Mary's act here to be wasteful. Because that expensive ointment could have been sold and given to the poor and needy. This is so fascinating because it, does, it tells us two things here. Not only are these disciples incapable of reading Mary's heart, but when they say this about this gift, what are they saying about Jesus? They're demeaning Jesus. They're saying, He's not worth such a gift. This gift shouldn't have been poured out on Him like this. She should have sold this and given it to the poor. Alms giving to the poor was common, especially around holy celebrations in Israel. And so it probably was on their mind from that reason. We definitely see Jesus Himself showing care and concern for those who are impoverished. He gives instructions along those lines as well. 
And then we're told what's really behind Judas' words. We're given insight here into Judas' heart. Judas, a money lover, had charge over the money box. And he knew that if that had been sold, and therefore had come through him as the treasurer, he'd be able to steal some off the top. Note this. His words sound so pious. This should have been sold and given to the poor. His heart is so wicked. His heart is far from the words that he's saying. While this woman, Mary, is being selfless with what was hers, Judas criticizes her sacrifice, all the while selfishly coveting the gift for himself. Judas is acting with his own selfish motives in play. All of that religious-sounding terminology was just a veneer over a covetous heart. Remember, this is the same guy who will betray Jesus with a kiss. In this case, it's the false piety calling for almsgiving that's wrong. And this is what's so fascinating. Be so very careful when you get to moments where someone is offering some sort of sacrifice unto the Lord. Yes, it is true. Jesus has many, many words to talk about. You know, beware of blowing the trumpet so everyone sees you as you give some big gift, you know. Like, your heart isn't about giving to the Lord. He says, hey, you had your reward in full. Here's the deal. Everybody hears the trumpet. Everybody sees you put the money in. Yay! You got your reward. That's it. Everybody thinks you're a great guy. Okay, but the, the tragedy is that's all you'll get. This is dead. Give in secret. Not let your right hand know what your left is doing. Do it in secret so that your heavenly Father who sees those things done in secret will reward you openly. You're selling short if you're just looking for man's appraise. This is all you'll get. There's much greater rewards at the hand of our heavenly Father. But note here, it's the one who's saying the pious words. Oh, this should have been sold and given to the poor. He's the one that's in the wrong. And meanwhile, this woman... In this very overt sign of worship, her heart is right. It goes to prove that it's not the public or private nature of an event itself that makes it good or bad. It's the heart of the individual engaged in that behavior that matters most. Jesus says, you'll always have the poor. Give to them as you're able. Don't criticize this woman for acting in a timely manner to express her love for me. Jesus here is asserting something that must always be remembered. As much as we show care and concern towards those to the least of these, our care and concern for them can never trump our care and concern for Jesus. Jesus is first. He is before all things. And a concern for Jesus and a love for Jesus certainly shows itself in love towards others. And while concern for the poor is good, what Jesus is noting is this. At this historical moment, there's an even better way for her to use this. It's better what she is doing than what you're suggesting. What you're suggesting is a good, but it's not as good as what she's just done. We must not forget the poor, but Jesus must always come first. 
And if we give everything to Jesus, He'll direct us in how we're supposed to give to everyone else. There's an element of wisdom that comes into play here. Jesus is making reference to time. He's saying, it's not the right time for giving to the poor. What was the right time is what she has done. She's done what is proper in reference to the fact that you won't always have me, Jesus says. Now, Jesus has mentioned to his disciples several times he's going to be going up to Jerusalem and he's going to be handed over and betrayed and crucified. But meanwhile, it's still not getting through their brains. Jesus knows he has less than a week left. But they're not considering the nature of the hour. In a sense, it almost seems as if Mary has a better handle on the nature of the hour than the disciples do. It's an idea which she's been holding this, saving this for this time. And she brings it. Remember Jesus' words? There was criticism that were offered against Jesus' disciples because they didn't fast like everyone else. Remember what Jesus said to those naysayers? He said, well, while the bridegroom is with them, why would they be fasting? He says, now there's a time when the bridegroom's gone. At that point, then, things will be different. But right now, while I'm here, it would be inappropriate. It would be inappropriate at a wedding for the groomsmen to be sweeping. We probably escort them off the platform, right? Similarly, what Jesus is saying here is inappropriate for the poor to take center stage at this moment. My days are numbered. This she has done to prepare for my burial. Because Jesus is going to be treated as a crucified criminal, you would not typically show the body of a crucified criminal the same sort of care that you would anyone else who died. Now, Joseph of Arimathea gets in there and does some things. However, as R.T. France says, the woman's extravagant loyalty offsets the shameful horror of crucifixion. That is why it must always be remembered, not simply as a model for uncalculating devotion, though it certainly is, but as an affirmation of the value of his death from the point of view of faith. Interesting. We had this read this morning. Mark 16. Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James, come to Jesus' grave. They come with spices. For what reason? To anoint Jesus' body. And what happens? He's not there. <laughs> He's risen. Jesus had already been anointed for the grave. It happened here while Jesus was still living. Isn't it sad that sometimes our greatest acts of love and devotion are shown towards people after they're dead? Let me encourage you that we still have moments with one another. Let's not be found with words left unsaid. Let's make sure we make full advantage of the opportunity to show love and care towards one another. Mary wouldn't allow this opportunity to go by. She's engaged in selfless devotion to Jesus. I'm sure there might be times when we found ourselves in a similar position to Judas and the disciples viewing someone's active service towards the Lord as a waste. Be careful. J.C. Rowell says, If a man gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, the world sees no fault. He's given himself over to these things. But if the same man devotes himself and all he has to Christ, 
They can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He is beside himself. He's out of his mind. He's a fanatic. He's an extreme man. In short, they regard that man's life a waste. This world looks at those who love Jesus with everything and give their life towards his glory as wasting their lives. Sometimes we might fall into traps similar to those, thinking that we can maybe consider a better use for gifts of sacrifice. Sometimes people think this way about the death of Christian martyrs, for example. Couldn't that individual have done so much more had they done this, that, or the other? Couldn't that man or woman's life be better utilized in a country where they're safe from harm and danger? Wouldn't that be a tragic waste of someone's life to die at the hands of heathen halfway across the world? That's not the way that the Lord looks at that gift. God is building His church to the testimony of men and women who testify to the sufficiency of Christ and seal that testimony with their own blood. We know many times in history in which the church has grown by the blood of the martyrs. Isn't it wonderful to know that what other people might call a waste, Jesus calls beautiful. They're saying this is a waste. Jesus says what Mary has done is a good thing. The word there, good, can be translated also beautiful. A beautiful thing. And J.C. Ryle says it so well. The deeds and titles of many a king and emperor and general are completely forgotten. As if they're written in the sand. But the grateful act of one humble Christian woman is recorded, and he says in 150 languages, I think the number is far more than that, reference to the Bible translations, and known all over the globe. The praise of man is but for a few days. The praise of Christ endureth forever. The pathway to lasting honor is to honor Christ. And it's wonderful to know that even should people criticize us and cast dispersion on our motives will never go wrong putting Christ first and serving Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Sacrifices made for Jesus are never a waste. Time, resources, energy, they're all well invested when they're done by the Spirit's power for the sake of Christ to the glory of God. Secondly, what makes a precious gift notable is its personal cost. Not just its comparable worth, but its personal cost. A precious gift is something that comes at great personal expense. Now, this ointment was priced so high that few had resources to even purchase it. It came at great personal cost to Mary. It was a kingly gift. She didn't just bring any old thing to Jesus. Oh, I've got a little bit of this. I'll just throw this Jesus' way. She brought what must have been most certainly the best of what she had. Jesus says, she has given me what she had. She's taken from what she had and gave it to Jesus. And then, not only that, but she lets down her hair. A cultural no-no in order to wipe Jesus' feet. She's not concerned with decorum She loves Jesus and she wants to express her loyalty or affection for Him. We had read this morning from 2 Samuel 24. King David 
refused to offer up an act of worship to God that didn't cost him something. Part of what makes a gift precious is the personal investment in the gift. And it can happen financially, yes, but there can be other things inherent to it as well. But it comes at great personal expense. And a precious gift is that which blows away all expectations. Certainly, some of Mary's expression may have arisen from recent events. She had just seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Let me ask you this. What sort of gift would seem appropriate as an act of thanksgiving to someone who just raised one of your family members from the dead? Would you give them a Lego toy that you found in the bottom of a cereal box? No, no, we wouldn't do that. (laughs) Would you give them a $5 bill? What would you give them? And when you think about it from that perspective, all of a sudden, things kind of change around. It's no longer like, can I give them some token of my appreciation, but how can I show how much I'm thankful? What sort of gift of thanks would be considered too much? But here's the beauty of all this. When we think about giving anything to God, we've not only received, and a miraculous thing was received that day with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, her brother returned to her. God has done something even greater than that, though, for us. Having lived now on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we know that God has given us the most precious gift ever given, that is His own Son. What sort of gift equates with the gift of eternal life? What sort of thanksgiving can we offer unto God that's commensurate with what we have been given? Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Now, God had blessed Abraham with a whole lot of stuff. He had vast wealth. But when it comes to a test, does God test Abraham by, hey, you need to give some of that money to me? Or I want a few camels, a few sheep. What does he ask for? Isaac. Give me Isaac, the son whom you love. Your beloved son. Abraham demonstrated through that testing that his chief loyalty was not to his son, but to his God. God had given him that son, and he recognized that God could even give him back his son if God so desired. He trusted God. And before the night came down, God stopped Abraham and said, Hey, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Sacrifice that instead. God spared Isaac and provided a substitute in the place of Isaac to be sacrificed that day. That story finds a much fuller expression many years later when God would give His only Son for us. And the difference there is that God did not spare His own Son led him all the way to the cross and then poured out his own wrath upon his son that sinners might be forgiven. In light of that, how can we not give all back to him? The woman gave a costly gift, but Jesus is the costliest gift ever given. Here's the, here's the interesting thing about the gospel. While it is true that the gospel is free, free to us, it came at the highest price. The highest personal cost. And again, 
That's what makes it so precious. Third point is its sentimental significance. Its sentimental significance. A precious gift expresses the intangible. It's an attempt to try to say something about something that's intangible. Bryn, I love you. Now, how do I express love to Bryn? How do I do that? How does someone go about expressing love? Well, one way that we do it is through the giving of gifts. It's an attempt to make tangible that which is intangible. Now, the extreme cost of this oil has caused some to wonder how the perfume could have ever been come into Mary's hands in the first place. There's a couple of options. Either Mary was quite wealthy, had wealth within her family. Maybe she's had it for some time. Maybe she scraped together some money and made the purchase. But another option is interesting to me. It might have been something that was passed to her. It might have even been an heirloom of sorts. Something that had sentimental value as well as monetary. Which, if it was, makes this all the more special. Notice that Mary doesn't simply drop a couple of drops on Jesus. She breaks the vial. She has no intention of keeping any of this for herself. It's going to be all spilt upon Jesus. She's not holding back anything here. It's all out. She's not so much anointing Jesus as she's soaking Jesus. She's drenching Jesus. She's giving all. She's holding nothing back. My mom has an antique lamp that sits in her house. I don't know if the lamp is actually worth much, monetarily speaking. It has some amount of value. It's not the most beautiful lamp in the world, but it has sentimental value. Because it's been in the family for a long time. It's been passed down over a few generations. And maybe you have some things of a similar nature where there's sentimental value wrapped up in the thing as well. Jesus says that Mary's act was preparing him for burial. I really wonder how much Mary understood here. Is this like one of those moments where like the high priest, when he says, hey, it's better for one man to die for the nation than for the whole nation to go down. And then we're told, well, those words were actually kind of prophetic (laughs) because Jesus' death would be for the whole nation, but in a different sense than what they were intending. I wonder if Mary really got this. We know that Mary was found often sitting at Jesus' feet. I wonder if she was really connecting the dots and going, wow, this might be my last opportunity to bring something to Jesus that's kingly. To bring something that's the most precious thing to me, possession-wise, to Jesus and offer it to Him. And I'm not going to give Him an option as to whether or not He's going to receive it. I'm going to break it and pour it. Did she get this? Did she understand this better than even the disciples did? Or was it just Jesus interpreting her act in light of coming events? We're not told specifically. Not told specifically. But nonetheless, this act 
of giving this precious gift is met with Jesus' words, this thing that Mary has done is beautiful. And I'll tell you how beautiful it is. It's so beautiful that wherever news about me is spread, people will also hear about this. What's the last thing a precious gift is? A precious gift is marked by love. The most special gifts are those that are birthed and given in love. Mary's act had value because of the intention and the motivation that was driving that thing forward. It was done from faith in God and love for Jesus. You see, whenever someone operates from this heart motive, from this sentimentality, no gift is too small. Listen to this. Jesus says about Mary, she gave what she had. Man, those words ring in my mind. It sounds just like Jesus' words regarding the widow with the two mites. What do you say about her? She gave what she had. It was all that she had. And now, so he notes the giving of two mites by a widow. He also notes the giving of this luxurious ointment. Each one of them noted by our Savior. You see, no gift when given to Jesus is too small and no gift is too extravagant. Never is a gift given to Jesus wasted. Such a gift will not be despised by our Lord. It will be warmly welcomed and received. You see, here's the thing. Have you ever experienced giving a gift to someone and it was wasted? (laughs) I think we have. I think there have been times when we really just missed the thing. And we thought they would like this, and they don't. And it's getting returned. There are times when our gifts don't fit the recipient, or our recipient, the recipient doesn't value it. But when we give to Jesus with hearts like Mary had, it's never a wasted gift. He receives it. He considers it beautiful. There is no gift too extravagant to offer unto Him. And there is no gift too menial that He won't accept it. You never engage in a moment of waste when you serve Christ. There's going to be times when we feel like we waste our lives on things. You'll never feel that you wasted your life when you're serving Christ. Here's a good test. Do you think there's ever been a Christian who's ever been on their deathbed and regretted one of the following. I prayed too much in my life. I gave too much money to worldwide missions. I spent far too much time helping those in need. I just wish I could take back some of those words of encouragement that I gave to others. Man, if I could just unsend some of those letters of love that I sent to my family and friends. Wow, I just shared the gospel with too many people. I've worked too hard to study and know God's Word. I've sung far too many songs of praise and adoration to the Lord. Man, I wish I could have stopped forgiving so many people of deeds that they did to me. I've shown far too much kindness to my enemies. Why do we never find those words on the, on the lips of those who are dying? Because they're not things you regret. You never regret serving Christ. You'll never regret 
sacrificially giving to him. In closing, I want to comment on a unique thing that you find because we're doing this gospel harmony. We read this account in John chapter 11 and 12. You find it much later in Mark and Matthew. Why? It happens here six days before Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew and Mark. But in John, I'm sorry, six days in John, six days before his, his coming death, is in John. But in Matthew and, Mark, Matthew and Mark, man, if I can get my words straight here, Matthew and Mark, it happens two days before. It, it makes us ask why. I mean, certainly it's not for chronological reasons. John gives us the chronological marker six days before. The other two don't give any marker. So why do Mark and Matthew place it where they do? Well, it becomes quite evident. It's for not chronological reasons, but thematic reasons. This story happens right in the middle of a discussion about the intention of the scribes and Pharisees to capture Jesus. And how are we going to do it? We're going to have to get somebody who will turn him over to us. Then the story of Mary. And then right after that, the story of Judas. Judas commits for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. It divides up the storyline that includes Jesus come, Judas's coming betrayal by interposing the story of Mary's act of love and devotion right in the middle of it. And as a result, you cannot help but see the contrast between Mary and Judas. Here's Mary. She sacrifices great wealth to worship Jesus. There's Judas. He sacrifices Jesus to worship wealth. Think about it. This woman pours out 300 denarii worth in this act of devotion to the Lord, a year's wages. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Mary pours out a gift of love on Jesus many times the amount that Judas accepts to betray him. As Mary lovingly prepares Jesus for burial, Judas greedily ushers Jesus to the cross. Some have even commented, due to his placement there, I wonder if some of the impetus and rage that's rolling in Judas's heart is because of Mary's selfless devotion. He sits there, watches what Mary did, and all he can think about is the money. He thinks nothing of the worth of Jesus. He thinks about the money. He wants the money. He's not going to get that money now because it's not been sold to give to the poor that he could pilfer from the top. So he's going to get his. You see, Mary sees her possessions as an opportunity to make much of Jesus, while Judas sees in Jesus an opportunity to make much of himself. Mary will gladly lay down earthly goods to celebrate her Savior, while Judas rejects and betrays the Savior in order to get earthly goods. But isn't it glorious that before Jesus receives this traitor's kiss, he receives this act of love and devotion in the pouring out of this costly perfume from a faithful friend. Notice that assumed in Jesus' promise that this act will be talked about wherever the gospel is proclaimed. Such a great statement. It not only says something about the fact that this story will be told to others, but it indicates that Jesus knows that while death is coming for him, 
and Mary has anointed him for burial, that that's not the end of the story. Because if that was the end of the story, there would be no gospel. There would be no good news. It would just be a sad thing. Jesus says, this act is going to be talked about. This act is going to be shared with others wherever the gospel goes. Because there's going to be good news. Because after my death, I will rise again from the dead. He knew that his followers would look back in retrospect and look to that night, look to that moment, and go, wow! Mary was preparing Jesus for burial. It was coming just around the corner. Note that even Matthew and Mark, who don't record Mary's name, they record the vital element in her act. Because, you see, the woman's name wasn't as important as the one to whom she gave her gift. Daniel Doriani makes a wonderful parallel. He says, why do we have war memorials to unknown soldiers? Why? You don't have their names. Why make a memorial? Why do we do it? We do it because we construct these to honor the cause for which unknown soldiers made sacrifices. We honor them by remembering what they laid down their lives for. You see, whenever we talk about Mary, what's more important here is not Mary, but Mary's Savior. It's what her gift says about Jesus. It's the most important thing about this story. And as we consider the gift that she gave, we realize... There was an even more precious gift given to us by God, and that is Jesus Christ himself. You see, we can give to Jesus as Mary did, because Jesus first gave of himself to us. God so loved the world that he gave the most precious gift ever given, his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your marvelous Word. Oh, there's so much for us to delve into and learn and grow in. Please remind us of the marvelous gift that Jesus is to us. And if there are any here who are lost, who are still in their sins, that I pray that You would grant them repentance and eyes to see, grant them forgiveness and cleanse their hearts, give them new life. And Lord, for those of us who have been saved, I pray that as we contemplate this sacrificial gift given by Mary, may we recognize that it was not at all a waste. And when we consider what we have been given, may we give similarly in a sacrificial way knowing that such things are beautiful in your eyes. Thank you for your love and grace and mercy extended to us. May you be glorified in our lives individually and in this church's ministry corporately, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.